Rising Giants Network. It's mid-October 1986. A couple of weeks have passed since Metallica suffered the tragic bus crash that resulted in the death of their brother and instrumental member Cliff Burton. The surviving members of Metallica, Lars, James and Kirk, quickly decided that it was in the best interest of the band to keep moving forward. They feared that stepping away from this path would result in the collapse of everything they had built, everything they had worked for, all that hard work gone. Besides, they knew in their hearts that's exactly what Cliff would have wanted them to do. So, with that in mind, Metallica started considering recruiting bass players that could help move the band forward. They decided to hold auditions and explore the talent that exists out there. Their goal was to keep going, keep building and become the best metal band on the face of the earth. From the Rising Giants Network, I am Basil and this is Legendary Rock Story Season 1. The story of heavy metal titans, Metallica. This is Episode 3, World Domination. It's late 1986. Soon after Metallica lost their bandmate Cliff Burton, the band started putting together an audition schedule. 50 musicians put their metal faces on and hoped to be the person who would eventually join the fast-moving train that is Metallica. The last man to enter that jam room with the boys was actually a fan of theirs. He'd been following the rise of the band for years and even considers them his favorite band. Crazy to think that he was in the same room as his heroes. Jason was his name, Jason Newstead. Jason is a passionate musician. He knew early on in his life that he would be dedicated to music. Jason first picked up an instrument at the age of nine. The mere age of nine. Music got the best in me Ever since I was a child Started learning the guitar in order to work on his own riffs and play his favorite tunes. However, at the age of 14 and after being exposed to Gene Simmons of the band KISS, Jason decided that bass was his calling and he was gonna look pretty damn cool doing it. His inspiration included Black Sabbath bassist Geezer Butler, but also an array of musicians that defined the rising generation of new thrash bands, including musicians such as Lemmy Kilmister of Motorhead and Steve Harris from Iron Maiden. Just three months before Jason was due to graduate high school, he dropped out and he decided to pursue his dream of making music and making it big in the world of rock and roll. And even though his parents would protest his decision, he still got on a truck and headed to California to find his musical path. From washing dishes to sleeping in shared apartments, he was determined. Jason played with the band Flotsam and Jetsam until he decided to give Metallica a shot. On that fateful day, Jason had waited all day outside the jam room he saw musicians walk in and out of the room and studying the reactions of James, Lars, and Kirk. Finally, 
As the last man standing, Jason walked into the jam room, prepared to take this gig. The mood was tense, somber, and somewhat sad. The band was still trying to cope with the passing of their partner and friend, Cliff. This made things disorienting for Jason. On the one hand, he loves this band. On the other, it's also really strange to be standing there to fill in for one of his favorite bass players ever. Hey, I'm Jason. I'm here for the bass auditions. Uh, hey Jason, come on in. I'm Lars. Uh, nice to meet you guys. I'm a big fan. So, um, this is James. This is Kirk. Uh, what do you want to play, man? Well, most of them, really. Here's a list of the songs you've been playing on this tour. I know all of them. Um, holy shit, dude. All right, well, let's play this one. Um, let's play that one. And, oh yeah, let's play Battery. Jason was so prepared to the point that he studied the band's set list from the Aussie tour, memorized each one, and came in to perform any of the songs they threw at him. Jason was ready and presented himself as the fastest solution to their problem. I know the song, and I'm going to be ready to play it tomorrow. That was his attitude. This got the guys fired up. Jason's energy was relentless. He played these songs like he wrote them. The passion in his playing is evident and ultimately two days after that audition, Metallica calls him back. Only this time, Cliff Burton's parents were in the room. Jason enters the room on that cold November day. Lars looks at him and starts. Um, hey Jason, so we just wanted to let you know that we love your style and you got this gig, dude. Oh my God, thank you guys so much. I, I truly appreciate it. Wow, I'm stunned. Um, Jason, I want to introduce you to Cliff's parents. We wanted them to be here today, to witness the passing of the torch, so to speak. Mr. Burton, do you want to say anything? Cliff's dad looks at Jason and says, You're the one, Jason. Stay safe. And with that, after hugs in the room, which served as a metaphor of Cliff's final goodbye... Jason Newstead has become Metallica's official bass player. There was no time wasted. Jason joined the band on the continuation of their tour. The Metallica train was back in full speed. It was really crazy to be in Jason's shoes. From playing in small clubs just the week before, Jason was now playing sold-out arenas across the globe with one of the fastest-growing rock bands in the United States. A roller coaster, to say the least. Jason's joining of Metallica was not the smoothest of transitions for him. James, Lars, and Kirk would haze him relentlessly in his early days. In later interviews, James Hetfield likened this hazing to the band's version of Morning Cliff's passing. In some ways, the band resented Jason for taking Cliff's spot. The band would do things like charge Jason's room for drinks, trick him into eating a full bowl of wasabi, and just generally pick on him. But Jason soldiered through. He soldiered through all that crap because he knew what he stepped into, and he was determined to make it work. After finishing up the remaining Puppets tour and recording some cover songs, Metallica decided it was time to step back into the studio 
and start putting together their next record. There was a really different momentum driving this one. Metallica was a band still trying to figure out their grieving process, managing a new band dynamic and focusing on moving forward. This next record will inadvertently have a much darker and extreme tone to it. On the back of three successful albums, a world tour with Ozzy Osbourne and a ton of experience traveling the world, Metallica challenged themselves to write something that pushed the boundaries of heavy metal. Something more complex and progressive. Building songs that clocked over eight minutes long, the band wanted to prove that they were indeed in their best possible shape. James Hetfield wanted this album to sound tighter and more ferocious. He wanted to be in your face. He wanted to surprise the newly acquired fans from around the world. Bringing producer Fleming Rasmussen back into the fold, the process for writing Metallica's fourth album was now in motion. James and Lars would lead the charge, but with Jason in the band, they had to adapt to how he writes. James Hetfield would be frustrated with Jason at first. Jason always attempted to follow whatever James would write. In fact, at some points, James would be hiding his guitar away from Jason to force him to write his own bass lines. This was just another part of the hazing that Jason would get in those days. It wasn't all frustrations, though. Jason would write a riff that would become a staple in Metallica's arsenal. The song is called Blackened. And it's the opening track on Metallica's fourth album, And Justice For All. The songs on And Justice For All were long, complex and heavy. It was familiar but also shows a band that has progressed. The album did come with controversies though. The first was the overall sound of the album. This one sounded much different to anything the band has done before. In that the bass guitar was hardly anywhere to be found. That's right. Jason's part on the album was virtually inaudible. This, in some way, crushed Jason, but he ultimately trusted the judgment of the guys. The second controversy came in the form of a music video. For the first time in their career, Metallica would record a music video for a single, which up until that point was a big hell no. They viewed music videos as a vehicle for selling out, something that the lame hair metal bands were doing. And they wanted nothing to do with it. Metallica's management urged them to consider expanding their ever-growing fanbase by creating a music video. On a sunny day in Belfast, Ireland, Lars James and manager Peter Mensch were talking about the idea of making one of their songs their first single and music video. Incidentally, the song is called One. Look, guys, you're like the Grateful Dead of heavy metal. You're doing really well on the road. Lots of people are coming out to the shows. But we need to expand your fan base. We need Metallica to connect with more people. I think it's time we worked on a music video that we can place on MTV and get you a much bigger audience. Lars looks at James. They both look unhappy about this idea. Um, I don't know, Peter. That's selling out. We're selling out if we go on MTV. Um, what would the metal community think? But Mensch insisted. The benefits of a music video on MTV in the late 80s was going to be a game changer for the band. Ultimately, the band agreed. 
but they wanted to do a video on their own terms. The song one is lyrically centered from the perspective of a soldier that lost his sight, ability to speak and hear, and even lost his limbs in battle. The lyrical content was dark to say the least, but they wanted the video to show just how dark. The video would feature scenes from the movie Johnny Got His Gun and would be an absolute breakthrough for the band. And so it happened. On January 20, 1989, One would premiere on MTV marking Metallica's first official crossing into the world of mainstream music. This was reach like they've never seen before. The goal for the band was to bridge the gap between heavy metal music and what was popular on MTV at the time. Metallica wanted to bring more people into the world of heavy music. They believed there were millions of people around the world that, if given the chance, would fall in love with the likes of Metallica, Slayer, Anthrax, and even Megadeth. The benefits of a video extended beyond the band, it would be great for the wider heavy metal industry. And so the seeds of success were sown. Metallica's record sales started soaring, the And Justice For All tour was selling out arenas all over the world, and Metallica were finally the headlining act rather than the supporting one. This was indeed a game-changer for them. They were well on their way to becoming a household name. That being said, the metal scene saw its first cracks with the band. Metallica, the once hailed kings of the underground thrash movement, have made a video. Imagine that! And to many in the metal scene, they've sold out. Just like the band had predicted. They crossed into the mainstream, leaving some of their most devoted fans feel betrayed. In one instance, a fan walked up to James Hetfield and spit in his face. Literally spit in his face, shouting, you've sold out. You made a video. James replied, you. Yes, we did. Despite some of the blowback, Metallica were on a faster trajectory than they could have ever imagined. This propelled them into new heights. The record label, as well as their managers, had to think long and hard about the next step. This next step can change everything. It's 3 a.m. in a hotel room in downtown Los Angeles. Kirk Hammett was jamming and rocking, jamming and rocking really, really loudly, making sure all his neighbors heard what has been going on in the room. People knocking at the door, complaining to security, but Kirk was really excited. 
he couldn't care less who he was disturbing. He realizes at that point that he had come up with an amazing guitar riff. He calls Lars right away and shares his excitement. Lars, hey Lars, you up? Dude, it's 3 a.m. What do you want? Bro, I came up with the wildest guitar riff. It's going to blow your mind. And surely his mind was blown because Kirk played him the riff to what will eventually become Metallica's Enter Sandman, one of the biggest songs in the band's arsenal. This was the first step taken towards Metallica's fifth album, and the guys were excited. Metallica's fifth record was not going to be a regular one. With all the steps taken to lift them from an underground juggernaut to an arena-selling band, Lars and the boys were looking to make a big move, something that would truly mark them as a band worthy of your attention. They were looking for a different sound. Even their writing style was taking a simpler turn, something more straightforward than the progressive style of the And Justice For All album. It was time to evolve. And with that, the boys of Metallica sought out a well-known music producer whom they felt would be the right fit to work with for their next record. His name is Bob Rock. He was best known for mixing some of the biggest names in rock and roll, namely, funnily enough, the hair metal band Motley Crue. The initial proposition was for Bob Rock to simply mix their next record. But during their first meeting, the proposition evolved from mixing the album to something completely different. In a restaurant, Bob looks at the guys and says, Look, guys, I've seen you play several times before, and I have to say, I do not think you've captured the ferocious energy of your shows into the records you put out. I think I can do that for you. The boys were taken aback by Bob's upfront and blunt attitude. I don't want to just mix your record. I want to full-on produce this upcoming Metallica album. The band loved Bob's energy and respected his experience. The notion of working with one of the most respected engineers in the music business really excited the guys. This would be the start of a new era in the story of Metallica. The Bob Rock Metallica marriage. Bob's style of working was a little different from Metallica's past albums. He wanted the guys to be more collaborative and pushed them to jam new songs together before any of the songs actually made it to the album. He wanted them to feel what they were writing, jam it out a few times, and decide whether this was the best way to go. The first three months of writing their fifth record with Bob Rock was not an easy feat to say the least. Now you have to understand, Metallica were respected and globally recognized at this point. Coming into the studio, Bob had to earn their respect. The boys had their own way of working and Bob was trying to make them see things differently. He kept feeding back with his ideas, pushing James Hetfield to sing more melodically, or Lars to be more groovy, or Kirk to keep playing until he gets the perfect take. He was pushing their buttons, but with time, they respected him more and more. He ultimately became a crucial part to the writing process. In many ways, Bob would be seen as the fifth member of this ensemble for years to come. Ideas would fly around the studio to determine outcomes of the songs they were crafting at the time. For instance, the slow, heavy groover Sad But True was supposed to be a faster track. Imagine that. 
sad but true, the slow, heavy staple was supposed to be a faster track. But Bob Rock and the guys realized that, ironically, that made the song sound a little bit more upbeat and happier. So they scaled it back to the groove monster it turned out to be. For the nine months that followed, Metallica would work day in and day out to produce this album. The guys knew they had something special on their hands. In fact, prior to even entering the studio, Lars in particular had a vision for this album. This was the album that was going to take them to absolute world superstardom. He knew from the moment he heard that riff that Kirk had played on the phone, this was the album. But when you're trying to write the biggest album of your career, disagreements abound. James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich had different work schedules and would consistently comment on each other's work. They would scrutinize each other's ideas and Bob Rock, well, he would be the man in the middle. When it came to Kirk Hammett's parts, Lars and Bob would be heavily involved in producing him through playing the best that he can play. Bob would look at Kirk and say, No, 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 not good enough. Take it from the top, Kirk. Kirk would be frustrated and say, Damn it, Bob, I really like that take. Bob looks back and says, No, Kirk, put some more feel into it. We need more soul. I need you to do that again. And so this went on and on and on. The recording process was gruesome. This helped the boys be better. This helped Kirk, for example, produce one of his most memorable guitar solos to date, the one featured on The Unforgiven. He initially came prepared with a much more complex solo until Lars and Bob shot him down and pushed him to write something completely new on the spot. This album also saw a substantial change in James Hetfield's voice. Early on in the process, James Hetfield would push his voice so far that he actually lost it. This prompted him to take vocal lessons for the first time in his life. Yeah, five albums later with no real vocal training. Imagine that. Hetfield was always driven by writing the best songs he can. And one of the biggest departures for him was to write a song called Nothing Else Matters. It was a straight-up ballad. A ballad from Metallica about being on the road and missing your loved ones at home. This album is a personal one for James Hetfield. Most of the lyrics reflect a personal journey he had been on. With all that said and done, Metallica named this album Metallica. A self-titled effort with a cover art that was almost entirely black. There was no theme to distract from the offering on the record. This one was all about the music. Hence, the black cover. The album became unofficially known as the Black Album. As preparations were underway to release the album, there was a curiosity in the air from the music industry. Questions like, who are these guys who are able to build an arena following with no TV or radio support? Who were these guys who had the support of Bob Rock? The Bob Rock producing their record. The industry, for the first time in Metallica's career, were truly interested in supporting this new release, a release that had so many people talking. Back in the studio, Metallica were making promotional decisions. Cliff Bernstein, Metallica's manager from Q-Prime Management, starts. 
Boys, the industry is talking and they're very interested in this album. They want to play our songs on the radio. But first, we need a single. Do you guys have one? James Hetfield and Bob Rock suggested a song called Holier Than Thou to be the lead single and the album opener. But Lars, Lars Ulrich didn't agree. He had a bigger vision and the rest of the guys were just not seeing it. Um, enter Sandman. Look guys, I think Sandman should be the lead single and the album opener. You guys, you need to trust me on this one. Sandman is the way to go. The rest of the band were puzzled, but Lars seemed determined. He's loved that Enter Sandman riff from the day Kirk played it for him on the phone. He always knew that this would be the song to carry them through to the next phase of their career. Sure enough, Metallica filmed a video for Enter Sandman and it became the chosen single to lead them into the next chapter. On August 21st, 1991, at exactly the stroke of midnight, stores opened to thousands of fans across the United States who have lined up all day to be the first to get their hands on Metallica's highly anticipated album, Metallica. Media, publications, TV stations, radio stations, everyone was there. Metallica is well on its way to becoming the biggest band in the United States and everyone was witnessing it unfold before their very eyes. In the first week of release alone, Metallica sold nearly 600,000 copies of their album and landed their first number one album on the Billboard charts. The album went on to sell nearly 17 million copies around the world and dominated the charts of every country it dropped in. It's official. Metallica were no longer the up-and-coming underground kids from the Bay Area. Metallica were now the biggest heavy metal band on earth. The New York Times, MTV, VH1, NME, Entertainment Weekly, and many other media outlets received the album with widespread acclaim. The album remained on the charts for more than 480 weeks, and Metallica toured relentlessly. The band went to every corner of the planet, and with every show, the band got bigger and bigger. One of the biggest shows of their career came when they arrived in the former USSR to play as part of the Monsters of Rock tour. Metallica was one of the first bands to play in the former USSR. The band played in front of what is estimated to be over 500,000 people, but the unofficial estimate goes up to 1.6 million people. Imagine that. 1.6 million people. And as the sea of people shouted back the lyrics to Enter Sandman, Sad But True, and For Whom the Bell Tolls, James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, Jason Newsted, and Kirk Hammett knew there was no turning back. Metallica have become a voice of a generation, a generation of young fans that looked up to them as heroes a generation that identified with Metallica's unlikely underdog triumph. They have officially become an inspiration to millions of people around the world. The touring success continued, and the band were eventually invited to play Woodstock 94 in front of 350,000 people, and were also featured in a tribute concert for the late Queen frontman, Freddie Mercury. Everyone wanted to play with Metallica. The boys were officially on top of the world. 
Metallica's Black Album tours extended to over four years and over 350 shows worldwide. The tour included one of the biggest co-headlining shows of 1992. A double bill of rock and roll icons, Guns N' Roses and Metallica. And although that tour was plagued with issues, like cancellations from Guns N' Roses, riots, and an unfortunate accident that resulted in James burning his arm during a pyrotech accident, the band continued to tour. Nothing had stopped them. Not even the burnt arm of James Hetfield. They were regularly playing the biggest stadiums on earth. By the time 1994 came around, the band and its management were looking at the future and how to follow up on the absolutely crazy success of the Black Album. Metallica were also a very different band now. Effectively an entity that employs hundreds of people around the world and have to make decisions affecting millions and millions of dollars. This is now the big time. And with all that in mind, plus the growing egos within the band, moving into the next chapter was going to be a tricky one. Meeting insurmountable expectations, the band, along with producer Bob Rock, toy around with the idea of moving into a completely different direction. A somewhat unrecognizable direction. A direction that would split the band's fans into half. Let's say it's a little controversial. But we'll talk about that next time on Legendary Rock Stories. Legendary Rock Stories is a Rising Giants Network production. Written and narrated by myself, Basil Anatawi. Sound design and audio engineering by Bashar Najjar. Produced by the Rising Giants Network at BKP Studios. We have researched this show to the best of our abilities. Some of the dialogue may have been enhanced to bring you closer to the story. All sourcing can be found in our website or in our show notes. Make sure you subscribe to the Legendary Rock Stories on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can check out all of our upcoming shows on risinggiantsnetwork.com. Until next time, take care, and we'll see you on our next episode.